Open your Bible to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 is what we'll be looking at this morning. And as you turn there, let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would feed us now by your Word, that you would use, um, that you would use your Word to, uh, to pierce the thoughts and intentions and motives of our hearts um, and we pray that you would use it to heal us and to mend it back together and to give us the gospel of your grace that we might walk in light of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so it happens just about every four years. Well, it does happen every four years, doesn't it? The political systems ramp up and it seems like it's probably just in the moment but it seems like things get tense more and more tense every four years uh now some of you who are more seasoned than than i am have seen things like this come and go so you just probably just roll with the punches but it can be a temptation for us to begin to think in political seasons like this the sky is falling (laughs) what in the world is going on and then just a, a couple of days ago, of course, we had a Supreme Justice uh, die, which will make things even more tense for our nation and for the political divide. Uh, so maybe you've had that thought, the sky is falling, or Jesus, he's on his way, he may be coming back soon. But it causes me to, to think, what would you do if you knew the end was tomorrow or next week? What would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. It's reported that uh, Martin Luther responded to a question like that. Even if he knew tomorrow the world was going to fall into pieces, he would still plant his apple trees. Uh, Others might would. uh, Of course, you would probably want to spend some time with your family. uh, Those who are closest to you, most precious to you. And share with them your love. You might would want to Go around to all of your neighbors and tell them that Jesus is coming back and they need to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. What would you do if you knew the end was going to be tomorrow? Well, our passage uh, this morning causes us to think in terms of Jesus' return. It causes us to think about the end. It causes us to think about the judgment, about Jesus returning And particularly, I think James is concerned for us to think about it in two ways. In one way, in that we are to have a joyful patience that he is coming back soon. You know, this is our hope and this is our joy that Jesus will return and make all things new, make all things right. And so we are to wait patiently and yet joyfully and expectantly that he is coming back. And so that's one aspect I think James has in mind. But another aspect I think James wants us to have in mind is is what it will mean for us to be ready when he returns. That we might examine our hearts. That we might examine what it is we are living for. What are we spending our time on, our money on? What are we giving our lives to? Our passage is related directly to what we saw last week in James 5, 1 through 6. Remember there, James gives this strong warning to the unrighteous 
rich who trust in their wealth and oppress the poor. And now in verses 7 through 11, he turns his attention back to the believers and how they should respond in light of God's return, of Christ's return and God's judgment on the wicked. So let's look at these verses together, James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Our theme for this morning is this. Since the Lord's coming is near, we must be ready remaining patient in our circumstances and standing firm in the face of suffering. So no matter what we face, no matter who comes against us, we must be patient and stand firm in the faith. And we can do so because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy for His people. Now let me start by addressing this idea of The Lord's coming and its nearness. You see this in Jesus' teaching. And you see it here as well with James. He says, be patient until the Lord's coming. In verse 8 he says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And in verse 9 he says, the judge is standing at the door. It's an image of the closeness of Jesus' return. And it's clear from other passages in the New Testament that Jesus' return will be unexpected. We don't know when the Lord will return. Jesus says as much in uh, Matthew 24. About that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It will take place so suddenly, Jesus says. So Jesus says, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So what is emphasized here is the unexpected nature of Christ's return. As if it could happen at any moment, and we must be ready. Thomas Manton says, Because of its certainty, the certainty of Jesus' return, and the uncertainty of its particular approach, Christ's return has always been represented to the church as near at hand. And in addition, in comparison with all eternity, all the time between Christ's ascension and His second coming, seems as if it is nothing. So as James has already said, our lives is like a puff of smoke. It's here one moment and gone the next. And so if our lives are nothing but a puff of smoke, and James, as James has already put it, then that would make sense that a few thousand years would be but a fleeting moment as well. In the scheme of redemptive history, the next great event is the coming of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we should be ready. So in light of Jesus' imminent return, how then ought we to live? What should we do? So from our passage, let me give you four exhortations for living in light of Jesus' return. 
First, we must be patient in our circumstances. Because Jesus is coming soon, we must be patient in our circumstances. It's pretty easy to see that the main theme of this passage is patience. James commands, the, James commands this in verse 7 and again in verse 8. He gives one illustration of patience, the farmer, and then he gives two examples of patience or perseverance, the prophets and Job. And I think James has two things in mind here as he gives this instruction for patience. First, he means for these poor believers whom he's addressing to be patient as they wait for the justice of God to come upon their oppressors. As tempting as it might be, they are not to take matters into their own hands. As Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. Instead, he instructs them to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. This was, of course, one of the mottos of Martin Luther King, who said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Now, if there comes a day when believers are mistreated for our faith here in America, in other parts of the world, they already are mistreated. Our brothers and sisters, daily, on a regular basis, mistreated for their faith. And if that day ever comes for us, it will not be ours to mete out justice with our own hands. And as we see all kinds of injustices in the world, it does not belong to us as individuals to carry out justice as judge, jury, and executioner. Now that's what the government does. It's why it exists, to protect citizens, to bring justice to those who do harm and do, do violence. And a democratic republic, we have certain avenues for administering justice. We vote. We participate in peaceful protests. We voice our concerns to our representatives. This is not a directive to, to be passive when you can bring about legitimate justice, but we do not vengefully take justice into our own hands. We don't get people back for how they have oppressed or mistreated us. We do not bomb abortion clinics or kill those who work in them. We do not riot and loot in response to injustice. We do what we can as citizens. We speak out. We give voice to those who have no voice. We have mercy on the weak and helpless, but we dare not put ourselves in the place of God by taking justice into our own hands. But on a more personal level, think about this in your own life and how you are tempted to carry out justice for those who have wronged you in some way. Have you been wronged in some way recently and it still lingers in your mind and it, it just causes you to ache all over because you want fairness, you want justice, you want to get someone back for what they've done for you to you. James says, be patient because Jesus is coming and He is coming to make all things right and He will carry out justice on all those who have done wrong. Be patient. Take it to God in prayer. Let your cries drift up to heaven. The Father will hear them and have mercy on you. And in due time, justice will be accomplished. So one part of this be patient command is be patient because justice is coming. Our hero is coming to the rescue. 
You can rest secure knowing that he is coming soon. But the second thing James seems to have in mind with this command of patience is this idea that valuable produce takes time to cultivate. James says, be patient like a farmer. He takes his precious seed. His very livelihood depends on it, and he buries it in the ground. And he can't do much about it except for wait. He has to wait for the rain. He has to wait for the sun to shine down. He has to wait for the roots to go down and for the plant to spring up. In large part, things are left to time and to providence. And we too should be patient knowing that in our circumstances, even in the most difficult, maybe even especially in the most difficult circumstances, God is working something as we wait in faith. He is doing a work in us far greater than he does with crops on a farm. Listen again to Thomas Manton. If a farmer using ordinary principles of reason can wait for the harvest, can I not wait for the coming of the Lord, the day of refreshing? The corn is precious to him, and so is the coming of Christ to me. Will he be so patient and endure so much for a little corn, and I not for the kingdom of heaven? He is willing to stay until everything has worked out, and he has received the early and late rains. And shall I not wait until the divine decrees are carried out? Be patient, brothers and sisters, for the coming of the Lord is near. And as Paul says, our present sufferings, so everything that you see in this life, all the troubles you face in this life, Paul says, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, it's not simply that your sufferings are so small. Paul is not simply belittling what you're going through. He is exalting the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ. It's not that your sufferings are so little. It's that His glory is so great that it can't even compare to what we're going through now. Therefore, in light of Christ's coming, be patient for justice. And be patient for the work that God is doing in you. When we're not patient, what are we showing except that we think our sanctification is all but completed? It takes a long time to grow in grace. It takes a really long time, a lifetime, to grow into maturity in Christ. So be patient as God is doing His work in you in the midst of your sufferings. But second, uh, the second time James issues this command, he adds another command in verse 8. So we are to be patient. And second, we are to stand firm. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So this command is to stand firm, to strengthen your hearts, to be immovable in the faith and hope of Christianity. So one temptation in the midst of suffering is to be impatient. And that impatience turns to anger, and then that anger turns to vengefully getting justice by your own hands. But another temptation in the midst of suffering is to doubt, is to waver in your faith. Now, James has already mentioned this in the early part of his letter. We see it in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 
There James is telling the believers to persevere in the midst of trials. Consider it joy even. And if they lack anything, they must ask in faith and they will receive it. In verse 6, he's particularly talking about wisdom in the midst of trials. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Be patient, James says, but don't begin to think that this means weakness or passivity. As J. Adams puts it, we are to firm up our hearts in the faith. So how do we do that? How do we firm up our hearts in the faith? How how do we stand firm or strengthen our hearts in the midst of suffering and in light of Jesus' coming? Well, James doesn't mention that specifically here, but I do think he gives some hints in the next paragraph. In verse 16, for instance, he says that we ought to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And in verse 20, we are reminded of the great privilege and responsibility that we have to turn one another away from error. He says we are rescuing them, saving them from death and covering a multitude of sins. Now what this does is reminds us, I think James is emphasizing what we read in other places in the New Testament, all these one another commandments to the people who are in the body of Christ in the church. Our strength, our firmness is found will be found as we love and strengthen one another. So you may not realize this, but this is a part of what church membership is. Do you realize that you hold some responsibility for your brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church? You hold some responsibility for their maturity in Christ, for their strength in the faith. We must lean upon one another. We must help one another. We must serve one another. Do you take initiative to strengthen and to be strengthened by your brothers and sisters? Have you recognized that responsibility that you have for the person sitting beside you, for the person sitting on the other side of the room? Do you pray for one another regularly? And you might say, Well, I have so little time to pray as it is. And now you want to add more things to my list, more things to pray for. We'll add more time to my my prayer time and I don't have enough time as it is. And I say, yes, I do want to tell you that. It's reported uh, when Martin Luther was particularly busy, he would say, I usually have time to pray for an hour every day. But since I'm so busy today, I'll pray for two hours. You're not too busy to pray. You're too busy not to pray, to depend upon His grace in prayer. So let me ask you to do this if you don't already. Print out a list of all the names of our members and their families and put them on your calendar to pray for them. So Monday, you'll pray for the Stoddards. And Tuesday, you'll pray for the Odells. And Wednesday, you'll pray for the McKenzies. And Thursday, you'll pray for the DeLellos. And on and on and on. And pray for one another. This is what it means to take responsibility for one another's faith and maturity in Christ. We must pray for one another if we're going to stand firm in the face of difficulties. And especially if there comes a time of persecution. Where else will we turn but the body of Christ? 
But my mind is drawn to one other place as I think about this command to, to be strong, to firm up your hearts. We must ask ourselves, where is our strength found? Where is strength found for the Christian? And the answer comes to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10. We've already sung about it earlier. Where Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away this thorn in my flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power will rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. Listen to that. I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So our strength will not be found when we puff out our chests and boast of our own abilities, but when we rest in this truth, God's grace is sufficient for you. And it's when you recognize your own weaknesses. Paul says even delight in your weaknesses that Christ's power will rest on you. So as I said before, we are in a very tense political season. And to add to that stress, Justice Scalia died a couple days ago. And people have been expressing fears about this and that, where our country will go and what that will mean and how bad things will get. But the best sentiment I saw concerning all of these things came from Ray Ortland, pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He totally blew me away. He hit me blindsided. The dramatic changes in our nation only mean that we Christians get to be more dramatically Christian. Glad to be alive right now. This is the attitude of one ready to stand firm in the face of difficulties. Of one who has absolute confidence, not in our uh, political candidates, not in our government, but one who has confidence in the power and sovereignty and purposes and goodness of God to build his kingdom and to work for his glory and the good of his people. This is what our attitude is like when we stand firm, not on our own strength, not on our, our voted, the voting block of evangelicals, but in Christ and His strength to fill up our weaknesses. His grace is sufficient. It is enough. It is more than enough to give you what you need to be strong in the faith. The Lord is coming near, so we must be patient and we must stand firm. Third, we must be united as a church. since the Lord's coming is near, we must be united. Now, I've already hit this just a bit, but here I want you to see this from James's command in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, he says, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, the word here means to grumble or to groan against someone else. Sometimes it has a positive connotation, in scripture, but here it's clear that it's negative, like complaining or an irritated grumble against another. This is when perhaps the personalities of two people don't fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Does that ever happen for you? And then one of them says something that hits you the wrong way. 
And I don't know about you, but my temptations, my temptation in that situation is to grumble and groan inwardly. And it might even take an outward form sometimes. Or it's like when a basketball team gets frustrated. They're not playing well. They're falling behind. They can't keep up on defense. None of their shots are falling. They're losing. And what happens if they're not united together? What happens if they're not in it together? You've seen it before, probably, if you've watched basketball. They start bickering. They could start grumbling against one another. When everything is going fine, they're okay. But when the pressure comes... They begin to crumble. They fall apart in division. But the team that is united comes together in the midst of pressure. We can be forged together in the furnace of our trials. And as the pressure grows more and more against us and other believers, we must lean on each other. We must be committed to one another. We must be united together in the church. But this unity doesn't simply happen on its own. Unity happens when we lay down our preferences and rights for the sake of the other. Unity happens when we walk in imitation of our Savior who considered others as more important than himself. And that moved him in love to serve others. So the king of all the universe stooped down and wiped the dirt from the feet of his disciples. This is... This is, what it, this is the mind of Christ. This is how we will gain unity. By following our Savior. And in the supreme act of service, He stooped down to this earth to be lifted up on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be washed clean. It is only by the sacrifice of Christ, only by His blood that was spilled for us, only by His body that was broken for us, It's only by Christ that we are washed clean and saved from our sins. And friends, this is all of grace. There's nothing in us that deserves this sacrifice. There was no potential that God saw in us for why he died on the cross for us. We don't deserve this. And yet he knelt down from heaven to rescue us from death and hell. And this is where our unity comes from. In the gospel, in Christ Not ultimately from our common interests in basketball or other hobbies. Not from our political preferences or ideas. Not from the stage of life that we're in. That we have kids. That we're married. That we're single. That we're older. That we're younger. Our unity comes from the fact that Christ is our Savior. And we have experienced a grace that is unmerited and unbelievable. And falls down on us from our good Heavenly Father. He has compassion and mercy on the weak. We are the body of Christ, and Christ is our head. He is our unity. So in light of the nearness of Christ's return, we must be patient and stand firm and be united together as a church. And finally, we must rest in the compassion and mercy of God. We must rest in God's mercy and compassion since Jesus is coming soon. And in verses 10 and 11, James gives us the examples of patience and perseverance from the prophets and from Job. And he means that we might learn from their examples, that we might imitate them in some way. 
Consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Consider their patience in the face of suffering. They suffered and yet continued to be faithful to what God had called them to do. Just think of the faithful who have gone before us. You know what the author of Hebrews says, to stir us up in faith and strength and patient endurance. He says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It's only by God's mercy and compassion they were able to do those things. It's only by the strength of Christ resting upon them that they could persevere in the midst of those sufferings. It's clear by their patience that they have been blessed by the very grace and mercy of God. And consider also Job, James says. James points us, to the example of Job's perseverance. Now, if you know the story of Job, you might be a little perplexed about this. Yes, Job, after suffering tremendous losses of his property and his children and his own health, he refused to follow his wife's advice and curse God. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he was also very insistent about his own innocence before the Lord, almost seeming self-righteous at times and demanding at times, pleading his case before the Lord. He complained about his bitter treatment. Sometimes he would catch himself saying too much. So it seems somewhat perplexing that James chooses Job as an example here. And yet he never abandoned his faith. He never abandoned God. As one commentator says, in the midst of his incomprehension, he clung to God and continued to hope in him. And another commentator, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questions and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. But James, I think, The reason he includes James is that we would see more than simply Job's perseverance and his faith. He he wants us to see the end result, the good that the Lord brought about. You do not measure your afflictions by your pain, but by their outcome. And Job gained more than he had before and other children, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation before he died. And the scripture says he was an old man full of many years. But look, here's what I think the point is of this. Here's why I think he mentions Job as an example of perseverance of faith in the midst of suffering. The end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Ultimately, the reason for Job's good ending wasn't his own calm in the midst of the storm, but God's compassion. It wasn't Job's merit, it was God's mercy. 
It wasn't because Job was full of righteousness and faith in God, but because God is full of compassion and mercy. Now, of course, the word full is a descriptive word which means something has as much as it can contain. And so if you have a cup that is full of water, it cannot contain any more water. So if I tell you I'm full of compassion for you, it means I can't possibly have any more compassion that I have than I currently do. If I say I am full of mercy toward you, I'm filled to the brim. I can't have any more mercy for you than I already have. But I am finite and there are limits to my compassion. There are limits to the amount of mercy I can show. And do you see what this means for God to say he is full of compassion and mercy? God is infinite. I am a drop and God is the ocean on a thousand earths. God is infinite. And so when he says he is full of compassion, when he says that he is full of mercy, it means we can drink from a fountain that will never run dry. And the fountain of his mercy and compassion flows only from the wounds of Christ our Savior. So as we consider the nearness of Christ's return, let us drink deeply from his compassion and his mercy. Let us be patient for the coming of the Lord, standing firm in the faith, being united together in love for one another, and resting in our God who is full of compassion, who is full of mercy, and who is ready to pour it out on us and all who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.